Welcome to Radically Personal, where we explore the behind-the-scenes stories of today's most beloved brands, how they started, what their mission is, and how they're building enduring customer relationships and showing their customers how they have their best interest at heart. I'm Joseph Onsonelli, CEO of Gladly, where we're on a mission to help companies reinvent customer service and deliver on the promise of radically personal customer experiences. On today's episode, I'm joined by Tom Montgomery, one of the co-founders at Chubby's. In this episode, Tom shares the exciting early days of Chubby's and just how important customer service is for their brand and who they describe as their fifth co-founder. As we think about community, we really think about community and our customers as the fifth co-founder of the business, right? Like we could not have gotten anywhere without them. We also talk about scaling customer service with this notion of turning a one-to-one conversation into a one-to-many. It's one of the things that we've tried to embody in the way we approach customer service and customer experience in general is give people such positive experiences and such interestingly positive experiences that they become stories and they become conversations. And finally, Tom shares how SMS is becoming the channel of choice for most of their consumers these days. And he shares some of those early lessons learned. It solved a customer problem, and I, and I think what we missed was just how significant that problem is. And that problem is, if you want live communication, there's not a great experience outside of SMS because your chat experience is live, but you're tied to a website. Your voice experience is live, but because it's such an arduous channel for a team to handle, it means that you can't serve as many customers. And so you're either waiting on the line, you have to sign up for a callback that takes six hours to get back. And email is inherently this kind of latent lag channel because there's so much structure to the conversation. This is Radically Personal. I am so excited to welcome Tom one of the co-founders and the CMO of Chubby's on today. We have been threatening to do this for many, many, many months, and I'm excited <laughs> to chat with you and, and, and tell this, the Chubby story. So welcome. The saga. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm extremely excited and, yeah, appreciate all the flexibility as we work through scheduling. <laughs> um, it never works out the way you think it will. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, we have another podcast that we recorded with Kate from Crane Barrel recorded, and it's COVID. So in that podcast, we've got a dog that's joining in. Like, who knows? Like, we're going to have all kinds <laughs> of crazy things that might happen today. So let's start with the chubby story. I mean, I remember when you were getting the company started because we had met back then. How'd you meet your co-founders? Like, what was the idea? Like, how'd you get started? Yeah, so there's four founders of the business, and we met at Stanford as undergraduates, um, so just kind of college buddies, and then stayed in touch after graduation. I went to work in venture capital, Joseph, which is where, where we met, and then co-founders worked in all variety of different places. So startups, uh, one worked in corporate retail at The Gap, one worked in kind of more hardcore finance, growth equity, private equity, banking sort of track. But we all stayed in touch and, and all had similar fashion sense. You know? um, and you can probably guess what that is. Yeah, you can probably guess what that is. Well, we were living in San Francisco. And uh, I think the idea came about on this on a weekend trip up to Napa. And anytime you're getting out of the city, you're wearing clothes built for the sun. And for us, right. that was all very vari- some variation of proper length men's shorts, which is like 
three to seven inch inseam, well above the knee, give the legs room to breathe. <laughs> it was very natural to us. And I think somebody else pointed it out that we were all hanging out and also all had, you know, relatively short shorts for the time. On. <laughs> and we kind of realized it. And, and I think we were talking about kind of how did we find these products? And everyone had a similar story in that it was not very sim like similarly difficult to find these products, right? So for me, I would go through the thrift stores and I even got gifted a pair of proper length shorts for my birthday one year from a friend <laughs> in college. Um, she's awesome. Like I, I still hang on to those shorts to this day. But somebody else would have it passed down through a long family lineage of short shorts. Yeah. And they were always from like the 70s and 80s. And they weren't anywhere to be found in kind of, you know, at least in the States, in any sort of men's fashion brands. And so none of us actually bought them from a real, like a clothing brand, <laughs> which is really hot. Oh, interesting. And so that kind of started the idea of, well, what if we sold this? Because we clearly love it. And when we're wearing it, we sometimes get commentary from our friends or their friends or whatever. Where'd you get those shorts? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, like, there's, there's an opportunity here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I played soccer growing up and and like for me, it was always just not, I didn't like having any fabric around my knees because yeah. then you couldn't, you know, run as and, and like, yeah. you know, youthful time, it was you couldn't run as fast or kick as hard. <laughs> and yeah. then that just stuck with me um, through my whole life. That's great. But, um, That's great. But so that was kind of the product. And you guys just had overnight success, by the way. You launched and it just was like, it worked, right? It was easy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's how things go. That's why. That's why everyone's everything's businesses. just up and to the right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I mean, you guys were super creative, actually. You guys did some really creative things to launch the company. Yeah, and I'd say one of the one of the hallmarks of the things we did when we were young were the things that we would probably never consider doing now. <laughs> Maybe that's to our detriment. A funny example is in 2012, Facebook advertising was kind of just getting going. And we were early advertisers on the platform, kind of learning about how this whole system worked. And so one of our goals was like build the following on Facebook. Right. We saw we had a really active community. We saw customers just giving us tons of feedback. And we, we wanted to channel this into a place that we could kind of more formally communicate with everyone in a really fun way. And so the Facebook following was kind of the big thing. So we realized, okay, like when we're advertising, if we're putting our advertising hats on, we could pay a dollar to pick up a like on Facebook or a new follower on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And this was at a time where we weren't really pushing a ton of money around. We didn't have a lot of resources. So we were like, well, that doesn't like we don't have enough money for that to be meaningful. And uh, and so we needed to find another solution. And we also knew because at this time we were shipping out a lot of koozies uh, along with our shorts and along with our product and our shipments um, just to be a nice value added thing to, for somebody to find a surprise in their package. So we knew the cost of a koozie and the cost of a koozie was like under 20 cents. And so we knew the cost of a koozie. We knew that an envelope was extremely inexpensive. We knew the cost of a stamp was around 40 cents. So we figured for all in at around 50 cents, you could put together a package that you could send out to somebody. And so we had the hair brand idea that was, okay, for anybody new who becomes a fan of the brand, like it's cheaper for us to just send them a koozie than it is to pay for this like on Facebook. Um, and so we kicked off a campaign with that as kind of the backing. And, and what we saw was exactly what we thought would happen happened. People responded extremely positively to free product. We grew about 50,000 new followers in a matter of a few weeks. 
This is when we were our, we were only at around twenty five thousand. So if I followed you, I'd get a koozie. Was that the deal? Well, the, it was a little bit more complex than that because we wanted to build in some virality. So it's basically if you I had to get someone else to get a koozie too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is a koozie amplification uh, strategy that, that now they're teaching at the Stanford DSB. No, so so yeah, you you had to be a fan of us already and then share the page, right? And that was uh-huh. it. And so anybody who was a fan could get a koozie. How many? We ended up needing to send out 30,000 koozies. <laughs> and, uh, and up until this point, oh, we'd sent good. out, you know, 100 pairs of shorts on a good day. This was in 2012. <laughs> and uh, and the, the short shorts market was still catching on. But, oh, um, so great. but so we had to figure out how the heck are we going to send out 30,000 koozies? <laughs> and so step one is like, let's just try and ship one. <laughs> and, and right when we get to the post office, we realize, okay, they have like a very interesting way of determining package sizing and it's this like plastic flimsy almost looks like a piece of paper but it's plastic with a little hole in it and if your envelope fits through that you can pay for it with one stamp and we were like a millimeter (laughs) thick where if you compressed it slightly it would fit through or you gave it any sort of force but the people at the post office and at this point we were still just shipping through the post office like we we were doing all of our own fulfillment <laughs> so it was like in your basement or something your yeah, bedroom yeah, we, or whatever we had yeah. a basement with a packing operation and the team would would go from working the day job to packing up boxes downstairs <laughs> <laughs> and then somebody would take it over to the post office so we realized you couldn't pay for it with one stamp so all of a sudden our economics are all out of whack and not only that, you had to figure out how are you going to send out the volume of 30,000 koozies. So yeah. we went through all sorts of – immediately, I, I started working on vacuum sealing technology. How tightly could I tape the packages, the <laughs> envelopes? And we ended up finding the solution to the envelope problem. And then we brought in about 10 people off of Craigslist to just come in and lick, such a seal, <laughs> stamp, so label envelopes. And we found somebody who fortunately was able to process 30,000 envelope shipments. And within, we didn't get it done quickly, but within, I'd say, 45 days, we had all 30,000 koozies sent out. And actually, we we retained, I think, around 30 to 40% of the staff that we brought on to help us run our, our warehouse and run our fulfillment oh, facility. Great. So it was like really great. It was one of, one of those real things where if you look back on it, you never would have said like, oh, yeah, let's do that. Um, But it turned out to be really, really positive for the business in a lot of ways. Your view around community and putting your customers first is so core to the brand. And you shared a story with me once that I'd love for you to share here. And, And it exemplifies why it's not just about acquiring new customers, but it's about finding that one individual that when you go above and beyond, you know they're gonna go tell these amazing stories to everyone else. Can you share that story? Yeah, so we we had a, a customer ride in, and I think it was he was at the lockers in the gym, and he left his shorts out, and he came back, and they were gone. And we figured really kind of what the problem there was. The implication was that they were stolen by maybe a bully in the gym. Yeah, and then so for us, the natural action is as any friend would do, we we got them karate lessons so that the next time. <laughs> They could stand guard <laughs> to make sure no one touches their shorts. And I think that was, you know, a hallmark of, in all seriousness, as we think about community, we really think about community and our customers as kind of the fifth co-founder of the business, right? Like we could not have gotten anywhere without them. They were a source right. of content for us in the early days, like in terms of social media. Even now, when you look at our social media, it's pretty much all user-generated content. 
So there are, you know, best content producers. We had people writing product descriptions for us from the moment that they uh, <laughs> they got them. Really? Like, before we had any sort of like review system in place, we would get these sagas written from our customers that were just their experience with the product. And it was such a fun time and so interesting to see. And we instantly translated a lot of what they gave us into content that we just shared right back out. And so like realistically, the business is built with buy and for the community. One other thing that I think is really great is, from what I understand, many of the Chubby's models are actually your customers. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. We we hire and staff most of our models out of our customer base. And every year we, we run a man model contest where we basically search for more models from our customer base and just basically activate as many people as we can to kind of let us know who they are, let us know what drives them. Um, and for us, it's always been about personality and just finding people who convey the brand. And, and for us, the brand has always been about um, inclusiveness, body positivity, diversity. And so we wanted to make sure that we were clear with that is like, right. we genuinely source everyone and everything from the community. And, and not only are they something that we're trying to serve and work towards, but they're fundamentally a founding piece of the brand. I love that idea of the community as the, the fifth co-founder. I, I never <laughs> heard that kind of expression before, but it's super powerful, right? Because it's like taking customers and turning them into your champions. Yeah, so one of the big cultural tenets at Chubby's is we value the customer, then the company, then the self. And, and that's kind of the order in which we think about service, right? So we want to make sure we're servicing the customer, then we serve the company, then we serve ourselves. It's one of the things that, you know, we have on posters and, and whatever, but, but it's also, I think, more critical. It's the way that the team lives and the way that we kind of live and breathe and, and operate day to day. And so for us, the customer is the pinnacle. As founders, we always wanted to embody kind of servant leadership and, and we, I'd say we're doing our best. But the idea there is always assessing the needs of your team and your employees and making sure that you're working your hardest to meet those needs. And whether that's giving them a hand on whatever tactical or gritty task they're working on, uh, no matter how small it is, where your employees need help is where we should be as leaders. And so similarly, our employees convey that and embody that as it pertains to our customers. And, and customer service is the front line of that, where one, customers come to us with genuine problems and like the most burning needs that they have are to solve some sort of issue, some sort of product defects, shipping issues, things like that, where we have to resolve that very quickly and do so with them at the forefront and the company as kind of the secondary layer. A good example of this is, is in 2020, we got hit with just all sorts of wild shipping delays because right. the e-commerce world kind of blew up and the carriers just weren't ready. Um, there, was, there were a lot of problems with getting staff on and we totally commiserated. And so it was like, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to process this? Because on the one hand, you've got a way to conservatively message and you can like try to be on the more conservative side of things, let customers know that the delays are going to take a lot longer, be as upfront as you possibly can and try to make sure that you're not setting customer expectations incorrectly. And then on the other side of that, you have try to set them so that they're a little bit less conservative and that might retain more revenue because people might be more likely to buy if they think the shipping timelines are shorter, but then you might start missing on customer expectations. And for us and our customer service team leads this, 
it's always been an easy decision is we want to make sure that we're conservative with our estimations. We want to make sure that we are upfront about that, that a lot of times people might just assume what our shipping timelines are. And so we need to get in front of them before they even place the order so that they know it's kind of the front lines and it's where we interact and it's where we get feedback. Um, And so the customer service team also has so much important data for our product team, for our marketing team. It's kind of where rubber hits the road on customer company self for us. Yeah. That's great. How do you, um, you know, moving from, you know, that initial founding team, I'm guessing that you were doing a bunch of the customer service <laughs> in those early yes. days, you know, <laughs> not only were you shipping koozies, <laughs> you know, going to the post office, but like when a customer were to reach out, I'm guessing you've answered your fair share of, absolutely, yeah, of, of XYZ. How did you take those early cultural values that you and your co-founders have and how do you connect that to as you have grown and expanded the team and hired new people? How do you make that connection of the company cultural values to engaging and enabling the team so that now they are the frontline people today, that they represent that properly? I think it's a constant challenge of how to do that and how to make sure that because the company is also always evolving. So there's the right. first group of employees who joined the company, but there's also the last group of employees who have just recently joined. And how do you maintain that throughout? And I'd say it's a constant challenge. So no solutions, but only things that that we work towards. For us, I think one of the most important things, and Jim Collins talks about this in Beyond Entrepreneurship, is like values must be lived, they must be intrinsic, then they must come from who you are. And it must be like as natural as breathing. Because if you set these like far afield values that you can't actually live up to and you have them on posters and things like that, but you're not really actually living them. It smacks of inauthenticity. People get cynical about them. People get cynical. They <laughs> yeah. stop following. And and so I think there's an element there of, of just making sure that they truly reflect who you are and who you care about or what the founding team is or the early employees. And so for us, when we codified our values, it was a team effort. And we'd always had kind of the idea of them and we behaved in certain ways, but we really codified it when we were around, I think, 15 to 20 employees. And we used our employees to make sure it was the embodiment of the entire organization to build out our few cultural tenets. So I think that was really helpful because then that group of 20 are the ones who have built this off of their own kind of belief system, their own structures around they need to live these values. And so they've been great role models. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you can build them such that the team is bought in, then that level buys in, and then the next level sees that model of behavior and they buy in. And so I really take that to heart, particularly, yeah. and, and I kind of try and listen to Jim Collins, Beyond Entrepreneurship, like once a year. <laughs> <laughs> Remind you of those things. Because yeah. it's so valuable, yeah. Yeah. I mean, what do, what do you think? You know, what's funny, the story that you just described, I didn't know that before you had said it. And, you know, gladly... When we started, we the founders, we wrote down a couple things that we thought were important. You know, it's about people and customer success focus. And when we were about, I guess we were probably about 20 people, we did a similar exercise. We said, hey, look, these were the four or five things that we think are important. What does everyone in the company think? And they added some things. For example, one of the things that they believed was really important was this idea of always be learning. Yeah, that's great. You know, so like that got added by the team. You know, like we have money now allocated for every person in the team to go do programs and education and we invest in education. So like getting the team to do that, I think is is super valuable. I also think that culture is, it's a journey. It's not a destination. And I, you know, I do an onboarding session for every new hire in the company and I go through our cultural values and I always start by saying like, look, this is a journey. 
and we're never going to get here. This is our, this is where we want to get to, but we're, this, it's our aspiration to be this way. We're going to make mistakes, but we're going to hold ourselves to these things. And when we do make mistakes, we acknowledge like, Hey, I, I didn't live up to that. And you, you know, you can own it, but like just having this idea that it is a journey and you know, you try to get there as, as best you can. Yeah, totally. And, and that, that in and of itself, like you presenting that becomes its own kind of cultural moment there. And, and it kind of embodies likely some of the values that you carry it gladly. And, and we had a similar revelation that was just like, wow, our team is awesome. They're extremely smart. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's great. We could be, you know, pencil to paper in the background trying to come up with our genius values that are going to really inspire everybody. But, but fundamentally, they created better values than, than we ever could have. It's great. One of the things that we've talked about is one-to-one conversation, like that intimate one-to-one customer conversation, the one-to-many when you're managing service. How do you think about that? I mean, you sort of talked a little bit about it in the shipping example, which is you want to get ahead of it, right? So there's certain things you want to get ahead of people all the time. But how do you think about the differences between that from a service standpoint? It's a really interesting question and and one that... We're in experimentation mode as it comes to this, but it's one that we're really thoughtful of. And there's a few vectors that I think it's really interesting to think about when you think about the differences between a one-to-one conversation, so just a straight-up normal customer service interaction or a retail store interaction or whatever, and how either that interaction or a similar interaction can be one-to-many. And so one of the ways that kind of that karate story (laughs) embodies is like one of the ways a one-to-one interaction can become one-to-many is when it's either... Uh, sufficiently positive or sufficiently negative or sufficiently interesting as to become a story that people want to tell. It's one of the things that we've tried to embody in the way we approach customer service and customer experience in general is give people such positive experiences and such interestingly positive experiences that they become stories and they become conversations. And that's one way to go to scale your CX efforts from kind of the one-to-one to to the one-to-many. And the second one is that is somewhat related is as you have these one-to-one interactions, you start to learn so much about what the problems are that you're experiencing or your customers are are experiencing. And so you can translate that quickly into things like FAQs, videos, even the way you build the brand. Fundamentally, those interactions can go from a one-to-one interaction to then affecting the many, either in this very tactical format of, of an FAQ or for us, like we'll take that and instantly integrate it into product development. And that's a way to affect the many. So we're constantly looking for ways to scale these customer experiences. And for us, the customer service team is like at the center of it. We have a meeting series called The Voice of the Customer where customer service leads it. And they just let us know all of the things that we could be scaling out. That's feedback that they're getting straight from customers. And so I think that's really, really powerful. Um, and it's figuring out how to turn the customer service organization from what might be thought of as like a cost center into an engine. Right. So for us, that's really, really important and very related to this idea of like, how does a one-to-one then become scaled in this like one-to-many scenario? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people think of one-to-many as like, you know, I'm communicating with one customer. Many people think that one-to-many is like, okay, now I'm just communicating to many. But you're, the way you think about it is how do we take this one-to-one conversation that's happening and how do we have it impact the many across everything the company does? It's, hey, let's change the product. Like, you know, we got a suggestion on something that we hadn't thought about. Let's go execute on that. It's a mindset that is what happens here in a conversation with a customer can then impact every other customer, which... It's great. It's like how you scale. It's how you take that voice of the customer and make it impact the business. 
Yeah. And um, that's like from the customer experience perspective, because once you start thinking about it as how are you communicating with many people, that starts to kind of be on like fringe marketing. And I think there's pieces of that where customer experience can serve as marketing really well. I think like Instagram comment feeds and things like that are really cool ways to kind of where customer service kind of doubles as a marketing moment there. But realistically, there's so many ways to scale the efforts of your team. Yeah. And we're looking for all of those. Like, how can we best just scale the efforts? And, and for us, again, like understanding our customers is the engine. Yeah. Talking about change, your brand, you know, Chubby is, is I'm guessing, a younger lifestyle-oriented brand, right? Meaning your customers are younger than other brands. And the way that, you know, your demographic of your core customers communicates is obviously very different than others. And I was wondering if you could chat a little bit about how that changed. Like I know together we, we launched SMS, for example, as a channel. Yeah. And you know, it seems to have like, well, it seems to have done very well. <laughs> yeah. 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 Don't be modest. It's crashed. <laughs> well, I think you told me it was, it was almost like a third of the volume. It was like, you know, 30% of your channel. Mix. Yeah. It's a third of the volume. Yeah. It's been wild. See, yeah. How, how do you think about that? And were you surprised by that? And I was very surprised. Really? In hindsight, I can justify it. And we were we were marching towards it and we knew that it was important. It solves a real customer problem. And I think for me, what I realize after the fact as I'm reflecting, as we so often do on things that are successful, now we have all the reasons why. You know that hindsight is 2020. Yeah, exactly. It solved the customer problem. And I, and I think what we missed was just how significant that problem is. And that problem mm -hmm. is if you want live communication, there's not a great experience outside of SMS because your chat experience is live, but you're tied to a website. Right. Your voice experience is live, but because it's such an arduous channel for a team to handle, it means that you can't serve as many customers. And so you're either waiting on the line, you have to sign up for a callback that takes six hours to get back. Right. And email is inherently this kind of latent lag channel because there's so much structure to the conversation. <laughs> and so SMS solves this really interesting customer problem that is just like, I want fast feedback, but I don't want to be stuck on your site. I don't right. want to be stuck on the phone with you. And for us, it was just underestimating how significant that problem was. But we saw like, you know, SMS, obviously, like, uh, I'm, I'm totally in the generation that SMS is the main form of communication. I mean, I'm older than you, but I, it is the main way I communicate with everyone in my life. Right. That's because it solves this problem of if you were to call everyone that you wanted to talk to at the same frequency with which you're texting, right. those conversations end up taking 30 minutes to an hour and mm -hmm. you're taking up every evening you have in perpetuity to communicate <laughs> in the way. So like, it really does solve a big problem. And, and I just think the younger generation is very fast to adapt to that. Yes. And we've seen that with SMS. And now, yeah, like I said, it's up to a third. And I, I see that continuing to grow. I think there's still definitely use cases where other channels make a ton of sense. But I think we're a little over a year into it. And we only launched in the back half of last year, and it's already up right. to a third. So I, I got to yeah. imagine it's going up. But um, yeah. it'll be interesting to see what the next one is. Yeah. What are your thoughts on kind of that next frontier? My product team is going to kill me if I say this, but I'll share it. <laughs> so one of the things we've been thinking about, and I know you're thinking about this, which is how do you digitize the retail experience going forward, right? I think that, you know, COVID obviously has really fundamentally changed the way we as consumers purchase, do commerce, et cetera. So one of the things we're, we think that's going to be quite interesting is video. And, you know, when I was in your office, I mean, you know, you have merchandise all over the place, right? And so we think a lot about 
customer experience teams becoming more of the frontline pre-sales, not just post-sales. We think about revenue generation. And so we actually think about video as a way to extend the conversation when people are asking questions about product. Let me show it to you, right? Like you might not be able to touch and feel it, but I can, and I can at least get it to be that connection that I think in, in work we've all, I mean, the last year video has been it. We think that's an interesting channel that really hasn't taken off. And I think that part of it is I think historically people have thought, oh, for video, you ha- you know, you, you're going to do a video of the support person. And it's actually not the point. The point is actually, how do I use video to let people experience my product totally in a way that they couldn't do? So like, you don't even have to see the support hero. I don't like calling people agents. I like support hero. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's not about them. It's not about having a face-to-face. I mean, you, you can do that. But I actually think that that's actually going to be quite interesting going forward. And you're starting to see people adopt that as a another channel. Absolutely. I think there's an interesting insight in, in kind of how you're, you're building product roadmap is like, there's an element of solving the problem of e-commerce, right? And, and one of the problems of e-commerce had always been for us, like theoretically, when you think about the big differences between retail and online, we'd always been like thought of like fit and like, how does it look on you and all that kind of stuff. But there's another piece of that that's just, what's the relationship with the person and, and how do you interact with that person? And, and so I think there's something really interesting around, is that the true problem that you needed to solve to bring that experience online versus things like fit or things like that? Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, my perspective on it, it's just like, look, I, I do think that if you can make service about people, you know, if you think about the, in the real world experiences, yeah, the person sort of helps you and maybe helps you with fit, but usually it's because like the person was just helpful, you know, right. like there's this qualitative side of it. And if we could figure out how to deliver that in mass digitally, like that's our whole mission is like, that's the idea of like radically personal service. It's why we call the podcast that, you know, <laughs> I just think that when you make it about people and great service is about, you know, someone having a great relationship, it's really powerful. I, I don't know if I ever told you this, you know, like every other service platform out there, like they're centered around like a case or a ticket. I, I was actually curious why we use cases and tickets. Do you know where it comes from? No. (laughs) So the case, the metaphor of a case comes from a legal case file. And it got adopted by hospitals as like this patient case record, case file. And then eventually someone built some like software for the insurance industry called case management. And, you know, like everyone was using cases for like, for, and I don't know about you, but I don't look to attorneys for relationship advice. (laughs) Like that's just not the place I go. Right. You know, so this idea that of making it personal, that was the thing. So it's great to hear you, you think about that. Now, on that topic, one of the questions I always ask everybody, the name of the podcast is Radically Personal. So what's something radically personal about you that most people don't know? Well, it would be tough for most people to know this because this is recent news, but uh, my wife and I are expecting our first child. Oh, that's Um, awesome. (laughs) Yeah, we got a little little baby boy coming uh, at the end of June. I hope that I, I know enough to know that I don't know anything about what's coming, but uh, I'm taking <laughs> classes, I'm reading books, <laughs> I'm convincing myself more and more and more that I just don't know enough, but um, we could not be more excited. Awesome. Congratulations. Yeah, end of June, June 24th. So that's... That's a pretty good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I, I gotta, gotta imagine. Big moment. Does, um, your whole, does the company know? Or is it like when they read company this? Oh, they do. No, okay, this right, this right. isn't right. the reveal. Uh, okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, summer babies. So we're looking forward to it. That's great. That's awesome. Good luck. I mean, uh, you know, being a parent is just one of these things that you can, 
you can only understand when you experience it. You'll be a great dad. I'm sure of that. And I'm sure that I'm sure your, your little baby boy is going to have the coolest darn clothes out there. <laughs> I can't wait. To, so. I'm, I'm imagining what the baby picture is going to come out like. <laughs> yeah, we hope so. Yeah, we've got we got young fashion that I got to focus on and all the learning. We've been, we've been reading like my, I'm I'm t- a total fantasy geek, so I've been reading The Hobbit uh-huh. in utero, which has been great. Doing all the voices of Gandalf and the dwarves. <laughs> so. Uh, He'll at least be a unique young kid wearing <laughs> awesome. shorts, quoting Gandalf. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> hey, um, one question I always love to ask is, as a fellow entrepreneur, what's that lesson that you've learned that you wish someone had taught you? I mean, you're seven, eight years into this journey. Is there something you'd share or say like, hey, I wish someone had told me this? Yeah, it's probably a different take. I, I wish I would have been able to learn it when they told me it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you didn't listen. Is that what you're yeah. saying? <laughs> I, I don't know. You just can't relate with certain things. So one of the things for me is just for any entrepreneur, aspiring entrepreneur, just be ready for it to be hard. Like be, be ready yeah. for it to be difficult. Uh, be ready for it to take time. Like for us, this is our 10th year of business and every year presents new and unique challenges. Like a pandemic, you mean? Like pandemic, um, and yeah, countless others. Be ready for failure. Be ready for all of those things. Be ready for self doubt, but also be ready for it to be worth it. But for me, that's that's one of the things that again, like you kind of can only live it to really understand what that means, uh, because you can hear that and you can kind of pay lip service to it. And honestly, it's only when you look back that you're like, wow, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. The second one I had is is just setting yourself up to have a great relationship with your customer from day one. I think that we were very fortunate to have that, but I think whether this is ensuring that you have a really good data stack, the right CX partner, an active community, um, just really need to make sure that you're working to have a thorough understanding of your customer and, and our ability to communicate with them authentically. Because again, like it's the fifth co-founder, right? Or, or you know, depending on how many how many co-founders right. you have, <laughs> uh, it's the basis of what you're going to build. It's vitally important to really start working on that from day one. And then the last piece is related to something we've already talked about, but just really aligning on your values. And again, it's one that you hear and you see, and like it's in the books. And it's but again, it's something that you realize the value of it as you're living it. And I wish there were ways to kind of help people internalize it, but cannot emphasize enough to really make sure you you have codified values and that they're uh, intrinsic to the way that your company lives their day to day. And it's certainly always going to be aspirational. And so it's, it's how your company kind of aspires. Um, but it's something that can be natural and something that can come to life in just day to day actions that aren't forced. Those three are the ones that stand out to me. And before we wrap, I know you're launching a foundation later this year. Can you describe how that matches to your core values? What was the impetus for kicking this off? And what's the foundation going to be all about? Yeah, so from day one, the business has been about really building that Friday at 5 p.m. feeling. And when we thought more about that as as we started to grow and and build, it really came down to balance and finding balance. Mm -hmm. I think one of the interesting things that we've learned is that there are many, many, many people who have barriers to finding that balance or who lack the support network or the support structure to find that balance. And so it became a cause that we became very interested in, particularly like focusing on mental health. A lot of like mental health issues are on the rise. Nearly a fifth of the U.S. population like lives with mental health issues. And it's just something that, that continues to grow. 
for us, we couldn't think of a, of a more genuine way to, to participate and, and kind of embody the principle of doing good as you're doing well to make sure that when we can, we can start to figure out a way to systematically donate to causes that are important to us. And so we're going to be launching with four partners. Um, and depending on when this comes out, we're, we're going to be launching in the middle of May this year. And it's going to be awesome. It's called Foundation 43, so-called because there are 43 muscles in your face, which you use to kind of show or sometimes hide emotion, the way you're feeling, the way, what you're thinking. Um, and so it's really embodied kind of this pursuit of mental health and that mental health isn't always about smiling or happiness, right. but it's about being able to rely on a support network, being able to express yourself. And so for us, it's, it's been really awesome, really positive. It's been a ton of incredible work from the team, totally. But we could not be more proud of our partners and our organization from just being able to do this and systematically as people participate with our company, they can be confident they're participating in, in, you know, hopefully making the world a better place. That's awesome. It's great. We mentioned earlier when we met in your office, I think it was like 7.30 night. It was, I remember it was like raining outside. I remember that. I just like, it was just like, I was it was like, you and me and the entire office was empty. Yeah. It was just you and me. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, and you said like, we had a whole conversation about some product features you wanted, et cetera. And you said, do you, I don't know if you remember, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but you're like, look, I want someone who's going to be a partner and I want someone who's going to be with us. And I never forgot that conversation, obviously. And it's something that I care about. And I just want to say, you have also been a great partner. And I want to say thank you to you and the whole team for that. I just thank you for sharing your story today. Absolutely. Thanks for the partnership and look forward to many more years together. And I look forward to that Friday at 5 p.m. where we can actually enjoy in person <laughs> again, so yeah, hopefully exactly. someday soon. So thank you very, very much, Tom. I really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Well, and, and right back at you. And I know the, uh, I really do, um, appreciate our partnership and, and it's been something where one, one of our prep questions to go behind the veil a little bit was, uh, was who, what, what companies do we look to for as, as good models of customer experience and gladly it's one of them, which is really impressive. And, um, as a company focused on that, um, you really do deliver on the goods and, and we've appreciated it, uh, routinely and in the world of SaaS and things like that, it's not, it's not the norm. And so huge <laughs> kudos to you and the team. Oh, that goes to the team. That's all a team actually, to be honest, that just, uh, that is all of them. So that's awesome. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. And thanks for having me, Joseph. Thanks for being on. Good luck, uh, being a dad and, uh, good luck with all the continued success at the company. Tom. Awesome. Thanks. Right. Thank you. Tom, thanks again to you and the whole team for being such a great partner with Gladly and for sharing your passion for great service. On behalf of everyone on the team at Gladly, we are super proud to be your partner in helping Chubbies deliver a radically personal customer service experience. I'm Joseph Ancinelli, CEO of Gladly. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or visit us at radicallypersonal.com. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. This is Radically Personal.